Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Greetings to one and all again. Welcome to our show, More Perfect Union. I'm Peter Jay, and with me as usual, our august group, Dr. Natalie Alinos, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, and Representative Jeff Roy. And we have a special guest today. Dr. Mike, would you do the honors, please? Drum roll, and I'm happy to introduce our guest today, uh, who happens to be the president of the Home Builders and Home Improvement Association, Mr. Emerson Klaus. He's been with us before. And Emerson, it is a joy to have you with us. And congratulations on your new uh, uh, committee appointment by the governor. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. And it's good to have you back. Now, why don't you tell us a little bit about the committee that you are uh, going to be working in? So I was just appointed by Governor Baker to the uh, Commission on Clean Heat. And purpose there is to help define the uh, net zero um, uh, stretch energy code that we are working towards um, and the parameters that will uh, end up being in that code and uh, that all new buildings, residential and commercial, will um, strive to meet. Really important. Uh, the law was passed, I believe, in uh, March, and now it's time to get the rules uh, and uh, ready to hit the road. It's interesting because of the fact that you know, in our larger topic about infrastructure, there's clearly a confluence in terms of addressing infrastructure in general and how we also pre-position that infrastructure that we uh, develop so that way it is climate change friendly all at the same time. So it's under the general rubric of build back better. This is all part of that plan. It is, and I think um, you know the move towards electrification and reduction of carbon uh, dependence is definitely a good move. You know, now we have to figure out how people can afford it, and that's a big that's a big hop. So, it's one reason I wanted to serve is to bring that side of it to the table, and uh, and remind people that you know every time we add money to the cost of a house, somebody drops off the uh, the ability to be able to afford that house. So we've got to be careful moving forward, but it's definitely where we need to go. And uh, we need to make sure the grid and the providers are going to be ready um, to uh, react to that also. Emerson, it's uh, great to see you again, and congratulations on the appointment to that uh, committee. That's going to be some incredibly uh, important work as we move forward towards the roadmap uh, to 2050. Uh, on the money piece, uh, Michael Walker-Jones holds the checkbook for this group, so uh, whenever you need cash, uh, he's the man to turn to. But, you know, it's it, you bring up an, an incredibly interesting uh, point that we grapple with. And given your position with the Homeowners Association, I'd like to, you know, just pick your brain on a few points. And number one is, uh, you know, electrification of homes. 
the cost, I'd love to hear your thoughts about what a typical home, the cost associated with that would be and uh, what a homeowner would have to think about along that process. And secondly, uh, in terms of uh, the workforce and the uh, number of people who are adequately trained and available uh, to do this electrification work uh, in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And I was wondering if you might help us along those lines to to kick off this uh, discussion today. Certainly. I will first say those are two really big questions. So, on the on the uh, first one, in the di- in reference to the costs, uh, we, being the Home Builders Association, of Massachusetts, um, are looking to um, MIT and also um, uh, Wentworth to do a study for us. Um, we have the parameters of it. We uh, um, employed Amy Dane to actually write the proposal for them. I'm sure you're familiar with her work in the past, really a good researcher and uh, analyst. Um, and so the two schools have come back and proposed what they can do for us. And what they're looking to do is a study on all facets of housing, single family, two family, up to three, four family, and then multifamily, and then look at inside the 495 Beltway, because as we know, costs outside are way different. And so they're really looking to do a comprehensive real cost study on this thing. So we're not just flying off the handle with numbers, and but we do understand from raw data that we have already that it's pretty considerable to go to an all electric new house. And, and then the net zero step is really a huge step. So one of the things that we're proposing is that mass save and there is some discussion in the legislation, and then our, I'm sure our committee will talk about this, but really looking at re-incentivizing that and how do we help people pay for this? Because it's it's a big hop. On the second point, the, uh, the the manpower issue is, you know, we know unemployment, I heard yesterday, is right at 4.2% nationwide. I think it's uh, less here because, you know, if somebody wants a job in Massachusetts, they got one. I mean, uh, there isn't anywhere we go, all of us, that probably there isn't a help wanted sign hanging. With that said, uh, trained people are going to be uh, tough to come by. Um, home builders and remodelers are trying to resolve some of that by bringing programs to schools. I think we spoke about that last time I was here. Um, and then one of the concerns that I raised on my onboarding call, and I'm sure the commission is going to bring it up, is that we're going to heavily rely on the solar industry. And as far as I can find so far, the solar industry isn't very well licensed or regulated. And so that's something that we got to fix because moving forward, as we give them more money, we'll see more companies come on board. Um, I think training requirements would be a great idea. And then some way that the consumer can have some uh, uh, agency um, with help because consumer complaints out of the solar business are huge. Um, I've talked to a couple of producers at um, some of our local stations and, you know, they cover this uh you know, the consumer side. And I've been told that at least half of all their complaints are about solar uh, installations and not working properly and companies not taking care of that. I think as we move to electrification, that's something that could really bite people in the in the rear end if we don't pay attention to that, because uh, we'll see that stuff skyrocket. And, uh, you know, as a consumer who just finished a major remodel on my own house and I got it pretty darn close to net zero. I will say when I looked at solar, I held off because of the the disparity in information coming from three different companies I spoke to. And I'm trying to weed through that. My house is done. I'm living in it. It's super energy efficient, but it yet does not have solar on the roof. And I'm I'm looking to hopefully change that in the spring. You know, if you could uh, 
take us through, for example, and I'd love to hear what you did in your own home. But, uh, you know, I had a constituent reach out to me uh, just about a week ago uh, who has an oil fired burner in their home and that's providing their, their heat and hot water. They do not have an air conditioning system and uh, they were asking me questions. I'm, I'm not a home remodeler by any uh, stretch of the imagination, but uh, they were looking for potential solutions. And I wonder if you could uh, you know, tell us, where does a consumer in 2021 go to answer questions like that? And secondly, you know, tell us about your experience in your own home uh, trying to achieve net zero and the things that you did. So, um, again, looking at the consumer side, and I suggested this uh, to the um, uh, facilitators of my onboarding call for the commission and said, I think we need to create a state website that will have expert info there, question and answers that people can go to and see and get answers. Because as, as we spoke about in the opening, net zero if you Google net zero, there's some loose terminology around net zero, but the reality is it's an applied technology and you can get to net zero in many different methods. So what I might suggest for a remodel, a major remodel like my house would work there maybe because of the situations we encounter like your constituent. And then when I go to do a new build, we can do it where obviously we have the opportunity with an open palette to do whatever we want to. So that may look a little different but the end result should be that energy consumption and where it comes from. I'm actually looking at a project. I'm gonna be on a, a, a planning call um, next week, I think Tuesday or Wednesday, with another town that's looking to rehab an old school into affordable housing. They have enough property to put another site on there. And I absolutely said, listen, you're probably a year and a half or two years away from breaking ground on this thing. We should absolutely talk about net zero. We should see, and we've already identified, um, I got an email yesterday that identified two pieces of land close that couldn't be built on for other stuff. And I suggest that we talk about putting a, buying that or taking it through eminent domain. Again, they're not buildable. I'm sure whoever owns them would love to get off the tax hook of it and put a solar array that will run this project. And there is in the bill, um, uh, one of the other bills that was passed, and I'm not, I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but it was talking about um, not only transit related, but energy. And if you can't have solar on site, that you can get credit for it being down the street. You, you make the deal up front with a solar provider who will go and build this field. And you have basically first dibs. You have a contract on the first um, uh, portion um, to run your project. And then any overage goes to the grid. Um, so that's something that they're looking at. And, you know, so multifamily can't necessarily always get solar on site or on the roof, but there's provision for it to have it down the street and uh, and basically contracted for. So um, back to your question, there is so much info out there and so much confusion that I think we have to definitely invest a lot of money um, um, to answer those questions. When I mentioned the study that we, the Builders Association, is looking to do with MIT and Wentworth, we are also trying to raise funds to put up a site, a question and answer site, and also do an advertising campaign to get people to it. So that way they can have answers from experts and whatever. Because one of the problems you have out in the field is, and, and I see it even as a builder, I call up, I've got a new project starting and I call four plumbers or, or in some cases, 42. I mean, that's how, how busy these guys are to get them to call you back and whatever. So plumber number one, I give him the, here's our idea. What do you think here? And if he's he likes hydroponic-based, water-based systems with natural gas or something else. He's going to try to sell me on that. 
if I call another guy and he's into the HVAC forced air stuff, he's going to say, oh, this is the best thing since sliced bread. So even as a builder with uh, with the background that I have, it still becomes that issue of, of negotiating through. And it's not always that easy. I think for a consumer who in their life might be a school teacher, a firefighter or a doctor, you know, pretty smart folks. It's still such a quagmire to walk through. We, we got to help them with that. I mean, I think as you as you move forward, your constituent calls with this in the next in 2023, when this gets implemented, are going to skyrocket. And I'm concerned about that. You know, uh, two things. Let me go back to first your your statement about the uh, unemployment rate. And I I am constantly trying to educate the folks that I work with about unemployment uh, because the there seems to be a uh, an incongruency here when people say, well, unemployment is down to the four point whatever. Uh, and yet there are all of the signs for uh, hiring. And the problem is that we talk about the unemployment rate based upon definitions that are set either by the state or by the federal government, not by how many people do we have who are employable and how many of them are working. Because when you look at that, uh, there's something called the participation rate. And that's when we get into not only workforce development, but also the idea that we need a human capital infrastructure improvement plan. And I think you hit upon it, Emerson, when we talked about getting into the schools, talking about careers, talking about regulation around what it takes in order to be able to have certain levels of expertise. And maybe you can address this because there are a lot of folks who are right now not in the labor market, and we just call them non-participants. They don't get included when it comes to trying to calculate the unemployment rate, and yet they're trying to make a decision, personal decision, family decision. Do I stay at the same level of, of skill that I have now, or do I go back to school? Do I go and try to get a certificate? And then the question becomes, has the state or even local municipalities made it clear that there are career paths, there are certain certifications you need in order to be able to meet the skill needs of the future market. And Michael, can I jump in to add a, a sort of top-up question to Emerson? And I think there's a gender dimension here too, because when we're talking about unemployment, as you said, the whole idea that you're not uh, looking for a job right now. Right now, when you don't have access to free uh, or affordable you know, childcare for your under fives, you know, that definitely pulls women out of the sort of looking for a job. So they're not included in that unemployment rate. They're in the non-participation. And, you know, I know as we're talking about green technologies and workforce development, especially the future of that sort of home building and, and, and greening our economy, women are already disadvantaged because of, you know, everything we know along the pipeline from STEM. So it's interesting, the unemployment point you brought in, uh, Michael, that might further disadvantage them, and, and we're not really thinking about that group. I, I think when it comes to the training aspect, it's interesting you bring that up, Mike, because we're bringing um, programs into high schools. So we're dealing with the you know, 17 and 18 year olds, uh, 16, 17, 18s, and not somebody that's maybe ready to, you know, 30 years old and ready to make a change because they were truck driving and they got tired of it or whatever. So that's probably a big gap we, we need to serve. Um, we do, we being the, our local association and also with the backing of NAHB through our housing endowment and our um, uh, one other agency that we have support all these programs financially, like the Ben Franklin Center 
in Boston. We have a program there and this is for formerly incarcerated folks looking to get a second chance. And so they uh, just graduated a class uh, last month. Um, it's a 12 week program. So these guys are coming in and um, I've gone and addressed them. And these are guys that, you know, for one, this is this may be the first time they've showed up 12 weeks every day or they get bounced and uh, and they're there, they're on time, they're ready to work. They're learning work etiquette, they're work, learning work skills. And, uh, and we have employers ready to hire them. I think the last class um, when I spoke in front of them was uh, 15 men. And again, uh, you know, no women. So I think we have to do better outreach to women because I will tell you the few women that I've come across in the trades do really well. They're, they think differently than men, so they bring a lot of great stuff to the table. Um, uh, when I was building in Florida still before coming back here in 2012, I had a journeyman electrician. And when her crew was on my job, I knew that it would go well because she paid attention. She actually wrote down answers when she questioned me on a plan. Uh, which was my typical, you know, meet them there the first day because they're, you know, houses are big deals. I did commercial buildings too, and um, and was surprised when I went back on day two or three that she didn't ask me the same questions because the men always did. Very thorough, very so they're wired differently. We need to reach out to women. Um, the other thing we're trying to do is we look around the room um, and, and we realize. Uh, at our board meeting, uh, other than two women uh, and uh, one EO uh, of one of our local associations, it's all old white men. And so we have got, and Michael, you and I have talked about this offline, that we, we need to do outreach to minorities. And, and they're out there working, but there's possibly more that want to get in the trades and find out how to get there. And we, we have to do a better job. So um, um, we're, we're talking about it. I'm the guy in the room that kind of raises his hand and go, Hey, we need more women here. We need to find how we get to minorities. So, and uh, along that lines, I just got invited to a uh, a Zoom meeting with a group that represents a bunch of minorities in Greater Boston. So, I'm looking forward to to talking with them and seeing how we can work with them and let them know of our programs that we get into the high schools for the kids, and then start talking about how do we do redevelopment for people that are already in the workforce and want to make a change. You know, along those lines, uh, Michael, I have been. Uh pushing um, some legislation on uh, workforce development that uh, would require the uh, Secretary of Labor for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to uh, provide a list of the top 10 industry uh, needs in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and provide that list to uh, the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. And in turn, the DESE would offer a, um, an incentive to schools that would provide training that would lead to an industry recognized credential in one of those fields. So, uh, you know, the idea is to put uh, $750 per credential produced uh, and pay that to any school district that provides that credential. So if you had 10 kids that went through this program and they got a, cred a credential in that one of those top 10 fields, uh, that school would receive $7,500. Uh, and you know that's uh, a financial incentive to get uh, a, uh, an instructor to provide that programming and to provide the funding that does it. So obviously you do 20 kids in that program, you're gonna get $15,000. So. Uh, that is one way we're looking 
uh, to uh, train people. Um, you know, workforce development has been a huge topic for us up on the Beacon Hill uh, over the past uh, year as we try to uh, get out from this pandemic. And we're looking for creative ways to uh, create uh, opportunities for people to participate in the future of work. And we do even have a future of work commission that is uh, active and go, uh, growing and uh, hoping to bring uh, the chair of that commission onto our show within the next couple of weeks. But uh, this is a very important uh, topic and one that we are paying close attention to uh, up here on Beacon Hill. In, uh, uh, I happen to be doing some consulting work in the state of Alabama, and Emerson and I have talked about this too in terms of some of the things that people look to criticize the South about uh, and how in many instances they're behind. With regard to workforce development, I must admit that the work that we're doing, uh, specifically in Alabama, this is not all across the South, but we have uh, taken uh, some of the ideas as you just espoused, Jeff, and tried to implement them not just at one level of education, K-12, but we're trying to systemically say, can we build a pathway? And we're all under the same definition of how we're referring to what we call career pathways. Can we build a career pathway that would take a student from their high school education all the way through, in some instances, postdoctoral work along the same vein or interest that they may have starting with high school and then expand that as they get older? That has uh, yielded some extremely great benefits for us and on the part of attitudes of our citizens as they look at both career, work, certifications, degrees, and a lifelong learning attitude. So I'm, I'm very curious. And here's the thing, too, that uh, goes to Natalia's, uh, I think, question and mine. How do you do this? Uh, in a state like Massachusetts without bringing all of the players to the table and in particular looking at those areas where we've been uh, sort of remiss, uh, as Emerson pointed out, with regard to people of color, uh, in particular women, uh, and across the entire spectrum of work. In other words, there's no such thing as just, uh, well, these are men's jobs, these are women's jobs. And at the same time, look at how do we make sure that we provide the support for people so that they can pursue those interests and those careers. And I think the interesting point, Michael, is to think about the future of work in the context of everything else. I think if COVID has taught us one thing is that work is not an isolated thing that you leave at nine o'clock in the morning and you come back at five. Like, I think the future of work is everything from like workplace uh, conditions, you know, safety, that you're not going to be harassed, that you're going to be integrated, that you're going to have a career potential, but also to opportunities to work from home, to take care of your kids, to, you know, to integrate with your caregiving responsibilities for your elderly. And I don't know, I, I feel like COVID has given us this unique opportunity to think about workforce development in an entirely new way, in a way that really meets our needs about, you know, I mean, I, I you know, the the language around the I don't know, is it grand resignation? You know, people are leaving their jobs because they're just not feeling satisfied. So it's not only we're, we're trying to recruit the next generation or, you know, excite people to work, but we're also dealing simultaneously with this mass resignation of people saying, I do not want to be spending my days working in, you know, these conditions. So 
I don't know. I think it's such a unique time right now for for policymakers, for Jeff, for you to be thinking about, you know, the 18, 17 year olds, but also the 30, 40 burnt out moms like myself uh, who are who are reconsidering, you know, what 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 do we what does work mean for our society and our community? You know, it's interesting to me that we're having this conversation and Natalia, as you're speaking, you are standing in a center that is central to workforce development in that you are at Bristol Community College. And, uh, you know, that that uh, is incredible that uh, you exactly. just here today because that's where, uh, you know, some of our uh, 18 and 19 year olds are heading. But if you look at the average age of a student in the community college, uh, it's probably in the high 20s, low 30s because people are looking for that uh, that change in life and that change in circumstances and that other opportunity. And our community college is a great training center for that, uh, that effort. Exactly, I'm really happy to be here. And I should just plug in why I'm in Bristol Community College. We're doing a mass uh, mask distribution right now. And I, I did a PSA at our last uh, announcement. Massachusetts is going through a real surge in COVID right now. And they have a mobile food distribution that's happening behind us. So we're going to be distributing masks to people coming to pick up food. Um, but also we think that the workforce and the students of Bristol Community College are people who, you know, are critical frontline workers, people who are serving us in our restaurants and, and they need access to free masks and information. And But everybody listening in, you know, we are, um, unfortunately, Massachusetts is seeing a doubling in terms of hospitalization rates. And again, I'm, I'm speaking as an epidemiologist off topic right now, but um, really, really important as the holidays are coming that you get yourself vaccinated, get yourself your booster. And if you're indoors with people who are unvaccinated, especially, please, please wear a high quality mask. Let's make sure we do that PSA two more times during this program. OK, <laughs> absolutely. I think that if, if I can address the um, uh, the continuing education part um, again, our, our relationship with the National Association of Home Builders really provides a great resource because if I was to bring on um, a new hire and say he was uh, already had some experience in construction or whatever, there are all sorts of certifications that he can um, go and obtain through NAHB. They're offered online. They also do um, major um, international builder show, um, which is a great thing to go to because the education side of it. So. I've done that for years. Um, it's amazing, uh, four days of uh, all sorts of exhibits and stuff, but the education arm of it is really wonderful. So in the past, I've gotten a green certification and they don't just, you don't just get to sign up on the course or whatever, they test you. They, they wanna know that you know this stuff when you walk out the door. So our NAHP um, um, affiliation is uh, really a strong suit for any builder that's a member. I'd like to underscore some of that uh, myself in terms of ongoing training. In other words, if you are employed and enjoying a certain career path, I think that there has to be some reinforcement of the fact that if you want to stay at the top of your game, you have to continue to train yourself, look for new opportunity, because the world is always changing. I know for a fact that at this point in my life, deep in my career, Almost none of the skill sets that I brought to my career in the beginning now apply and that I've had to move from an analog world into a digital world, become software proficient in all kinds of applications, many of which are complex, 
none of which existed when I started, uh, and to develop some IT expertise in general, management expertise, and a whole lot of things that I had never anticipated when I started. And I started with a pretty good career, you know, as a technologist in television, but the technology of that day and the technology of today don't even resemble each other. So um, I've seen friends who thought that they had a solid career by signing on to a job, learning a certain skill set, going to work for a company and thinking that they were set for life, only to discover along the way that companies are finite in their lives as well, not just people, and that they can find themselves suddenly not worth what they thought they were worth. And that's a pretty sad day. So uh, trade associations like the one you mentioned, I think are absolutely critical in terms of keeping currency uh, with people. And uh, I think that's something that we should take a look at and perhaps reinforce for the long term. Well, I let me add to uh, uh, some historical observations that I've encountered in my academic career. One of them happens to be uh, a tabletop exercise that's now done with a company called GE and their lack of vision when it came to human capital development. Uh, and as a result of that, they went from actually one of the largest corporations and one of the most profitable corporations in the United States to now almost in relative terms, a penny stock and just a sliver of what they at one time used to be. And all of it centers around their lack of vision around human capital investment. Because like many companies, who in some instances still have the same attitude, they did not see the value investing in their labor, in their employees. Because when we are teaching economics, especially under the Samuelson or some of the more modern kinds of economic theory, labor is simply one of those commodities that you have to move around to try to maximize your profits on. It's not a commodity that it's not an asset that you have to nurture and develop in the minds of some corporate leaders. Uh, and so when GE took its, for example, appliance manufacturing and decided, well, if we move the plant to Mexico, uh, we'll have cheaper labor and we'll be able to sell the appliance at the same rate, but we'll be making more in terms of our profit margin. Well, when they did that, they didn't recognize that not only did they have the transition piece, but they also didn't invest in the real development of that human capital infrastructure when they moved to Mexico. And suddenly the quality of their products started to wane. They started to get a really bad reputation in that particular area. Uh, and as a result, their, uh, their, uh, their market share started to go down and ultimately the GE that we see today was created because of the lack of vision of its managers. Uh, and yet I am very encouraged when I talk to people like Emerson who understand that, you know what, if I'm going to run a company, I need to make sure that I'm constantly in this pipeline developing uh, not only uh, my, uh, uh, my resources, but the asset that I have that's most critical in my biz business which are the people who are working with me and their skills and talents, because they're constantly being challenged with new kinds of, of innovations, 
new, ty uh, new types of skills and certifications they need. And you may want to address that, Emerson, because I know you've You've been frustrated with regard to the human development and the human capital aspects and the lack of, I guess, support that you're getting, not only from some of the schools, uh, but also in terms of some of the certifications and some of the pieces that are out there. So you might want to uh, sort of share that with our... So one of the interesting challenges we have, even as a Builders Association, uh, when we look at our membership, and you know, membership is what drives us, it, what's, it, what funds what we do and and travels up to what NAHB does. And they have a huge presence um, uh, pretty much with any administration in in uh, um, DC. And uh, and that's hugely important. And we got we have to support that. But when you look here in Massachusetts and it's the same I built in Connecticut where I grew up, um, I built in Florida, it, it, that the participation level of the CSL holders. So that's our licensed folks here in Massachusetts in an organized association is pretty minimal. And it, it, it always blows me away because uh, uh, our favorite son, Ben Franklin, who I see hanging behind Pete there, you know, made a comment somewhere and I'll paraphrase about, you know, you, you, you need to give back to the industry that you're involved in. And I've always done that. And, and for the CSL holders, I will say we're somewhere about 7% of the CSL holders in the Bragby, which is the Boston Builders Group, we have five associations in the state that all feed up to the state association. And I think it's somewhere around 7% of the CSL holders. It's sad that we don't see for a paltry $400 a, a year or something like that, that they're not joining an association where they can get these education benefits, have an information pipeline, do their continuing ed. And a lot of them do their continuing ed through us, but they don't feel the need to join. I think that's something we, we strive to figure that out as a builder. I don't get it when a guy isn't involved um, and, and it, you know, doesn't avail themselves. But I will tell you, I was at a trade show um, that Florida home builders put on called the Southeast Builders Conference. And other than the international show, it's the next largest home building show in the country. And I'm standing there with a gentleman from my own county who one of my suppliers introduces and I'm then the president of the local association. And, the, and I said, um, you know, long story short, I said to the guy, how are you not a member? He goes, well, you know, you know, I, I don't know what they give us. I said, I, I looked around and we're in the Orlando uh, Convention Center. We're taking up two thirds of their space at the time. It's, it's double now inside. But and I'm like, dude, what are you doing here? Are you doing continuing ed? Oh, yeah, I'm getting all my hours in here. And then I said to him, and Florida has always been a work comp fight. Um, it's, I think, number one in the costs of work, workers comp now and and number three from the bottom in paying our injured employee but long story short we have an exemption that's available for a mom and pop guy um, so him and his wife I said to him what do you pay for workers comp and he was oh man I have an exemption and so I pay the minimum just to provide coverage but it's costing me whatever I said that exemption saves you eight thousand dollars a year I said guys like me fought for that from night and I was standing there with him in 2000 five, I think. I said, I fought that since 1993 to today to keep that intact. You're saving eight grand a year. You think you could send a check for 400 bucks and participate? And he never joined. And, I, and I'm like, wow. So that's something that we continue to try to fix and get out there with the outreach. We're hoping with the net zero that we have uh, uh, an information flow that people will, a light bulb might come on. 
that these guys go, wow, these guys really have it. They're answering our questions. They're providing continuing education. They're doing this, this, and this. I have to be a member. And, you know, one of the ways incentivized, I said, listen, we, when we offer a class, if it's a hundred bucks for a member, it needs to be $200 for a non-member. So if he does the math and he does four classes in a year, he's paid for his thing, right? And, but again, the participation of builders, uh, CSL holders in the state of Massachusetts in a local association, whether it's us or the remodelers group, um, it's pretty small. And, uh, and something that we, we try to fix because, you know, we have more members. They, for one, they bring more um, talent to the table. And they have input from different backgrounds. And, you know, that's more what we want to see. And again, I look around the table and I say, we're not doing a great job with minorities and women. And so that's always our other push when we talk about membership is we've got to get a broader spectrum. Um, you know, and, and it's been proven, it's been studied, it's been talked about that uh, what women and minorities, they bring a different viewpoint to the table than just us old white guys. And, you know, in, in Alabama, we have, uh, we've, tried to help the not only the industry but also the industry associations through what we call our regional workforce councils uh, we have seven of them in uh, in Alabama uh, these seven councils are all tangent to the Department of Commerce the Department of Labor where the discussion that you just had uh, or the information you just shared uh, Emerson, is brought to that council so that all of the businesses, small all the way up to the heavy and uh, international manufacturers like to uh, Toyota, Mercedes, they're all sitting at this table. And with the Department of Commerce, Department of Labor, and our universities, our entire education structural system, we are trying to make sure that the industry associations, the universities were all working in partnership because your CEUs that your association is providing, what we're looking at is how can we as the universities and the community colleges and the K-12 schools help to enhance that by either embedding your certifications and that CEU into some of the work that we're doing for either academic credit or uh, certifications, uh, we call them uh, certifications of value. Uh, that can contribute to a person's gaining an associate or bachelor's degree. Um, and it seems to be that that has moved many of our businesses now to focus on, you know what, where can I go and join and help my employees? Because at the end of the day, without those employees, my business is going to suffer or potentially go out of business because I don't have that ongoing kind of training. And so I guess that's a challenge for all of us, Pete, Jeff, uh, Natalia. Uh, the challenge for all of us is how do we contribute to this human capital development uh, in a way that all of our citizens begin to think, you know what? Uh, yeah, working is something that will help me and it helps in terms of my lifelong learning. Well, I can chime in here with a little bit of information. Going back to my filmmaking days, um, when I was a producer, director, and so on, I recall one day when my production manager, because we were doing many shoots at the same time for many different projects, uh, my production manager came up to me and said, I have an issue. Uh, I've put together a crew for a shoot upcoming tomorrow. 
the shoot involves helicopters and all sorts of testosterone laden scenes, you know, wartime, et cetera. I mean, it's, it's, it's a guy's 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 shoot in a lot of people's minds. Well, the crew that we had assembled, five of them were all women, the director of photography, the second camera, the key grip, the gaffer, all women. And it was just the luck of the draw in terms of freelancers, uh, union people, et cetera, who happened to be available. Now, I had worked with all of them in the past. Individually, there have been members of shoots that I did. So here was, call it random chance, what you will, they're all brought onto the same project. And yeah, they all know each other. So my production manager explains to me, this is what we have. And my first reaction to her was, yeah, so what's your point? <laughs> Almost, it was a fait accompli in my mind. But that's because I had been acclimated. I already knew all of these people as consummate professionals. Um, but I understood a second later what she was saying. There might be some client resistance to this. And true to form, at about 9.30 in the morning on day of shoot, I get a call from our client saying, when's the real crew showing up? Comical and sad all at the same time. And without hesitation, I said to the client, you've got the A-team, trust me, they will knock it out of the park. They know exactly what to do. Confidence is high. And sure enough, the shoot went fine. But there is this sociological resistance for women in certain technical roles. Add to that the fact that they are all members of unions, NABET, IATSE, et cetera, who have exactly what we've been talking about with Emerson, the ongoing workforce training. They had developed these skills through their memberships, through ongoing participation, and also through us uh, in that we contributed to the cost of the ongoing training indirectly as a production company. And we saw the value in that. Uh, number one, it developed a certain element of loyalty among the freelancers who worked with us, of which there were easily perhaps 100 people. And that I felt that they worked harder for us than perhaps for other production companies who didn't have as intimate a relationship with them. So I saw it as a virtuous cycle. And I would love to encapsulate that when you tell the story about GE, for instance, there are a lot of corporations. Now, I had a private company. I owned it. I could make that choice as the person who owned the company and is arbitrarily the last one to get paid after all the expenses. But that said, when you have a large corporation, a public corporation, that has very difficult time connecting the longer term benefit of workforce development with the much shorter cycle of quarterly reports. That's where we have a significant disconnect financially. And I'm not exactly sure what the answer to that is. How do we incentivize companies to invest more in their people? Well, if I can add um, from the NAHB side, um, when we have brought um, to local high schools, the programs um, uh, or the curriculum or the idea we do just that. We bring them uh, through NAHB and all our all of our members do is quite frankly and in investments uh, in uh, fundraising. We bring them the curriculum for free. Um, typically, we've gotten them grants uh, right from HBI or our other advocacy um, uh, arm uh, of ten thousand dollars. 
And, and then we turn and sometimes are lucky enough to bring a major player. Like when we did this for um, Milford High School, um, Josh, the principal there, was all over it. He, he actually went from this being an idea to implementation in less than a year's time, about nine months. Um, we got them a $10,000 grant, provided the education materials and curriculum, so they didn't have to go spend money on that um, at all. Um, and then we brought Lowe's to the table and Lowe's um, invested about $50,000 in tools and equipment to the school and gave them another grant. And I want to say that was $25,000 to improve because the spaces they had used for shop class and the like had been um, kind of dismantled. So that 25K was to put in new electric and some other stuff to make it a better workspace. I think the first year they had 18 students. Um, it's a two-year program, and the second year, I think they had 19 or 20 that signed up. And the real cool part is when we kicked this off was to go, we had a panel um, of, uh, of mostly younger guys. Guys like me weren't on a panel. We wanted to put a different face on it. So we had some young guys and, and women who are active in our association answer all the questions. There were parents in the room, uh, teachers, guidance counselors, and you know, the, the students want to sit there and just listen and whatever. They don't want to show any emotion, whatever. The, the parents um, and the, the guidance counselors and teachers were so excited that I could tell this was going to be a success. They knew there was a huge need out there. Um, they knew that right now, um, a lot of times, if you're not headed on to college, um, there, there is no nothing out there for you. And there's no importance put on it. And, uh, and we've seen that we need to change that, you know. Um, I actually have, and, and, and we need to educate parents um, to the fact that, hey, if your son or daughter picks a trade, here's how they can get started. But, you know, 10 years down the road, here's the money they can be making. And I think sometimes when you see their eyes widen, they had no idea. And, and uh, you know, my answer to that is call a plumber for a service call. You'll be blown away what the price is because he's um, well sought after. Um, he's in such demand. They, they could work 24 7 you know, 365 days a year and not not fill all the need. And so, but what does that equate to? He's charging a little more than he did two years ago and 10 years ago, but you can make a great living. I mean, I had one of my plumbers that uh, had his own business here for a while, did all my work um, uh, for the first three years when I started this company. And he called me one day, he says, you're probably gonna hate me, but I, I, I really respect your advice. I was offered a job. It means I would be closing down my shop and, and you know, you, you, you have to find a new plumber. And when I tell you this guy was the best, uh, um, you know, just awesome dude, could do anything, showed up when he was supposed to, all the stuff you want, right? And I said, lay out what you got. And I said to him, Keith, you got to quit. You got you to hold your tent. I'm not happy to hear that. I'm happy for you, but you need to jump on this. And I will tell you, he's making well over six figures. He works hard for it, um, but you know, I simply did the math with him when I talked to him. I said, "Listen, you do ten hours of overtime a year. That's your that's a, your qualification for a mortgage. You're trying to get into that new house out in uh, uh, in Webster. You're going to get there with this job. Jump all over it." And um, and uh, unfortunately for me, he did, but he's doing really well, and he's and he's making a killing. Um, and uh, and we've actually done some work on that new house. Well new to him but it, it it was about 25 years old so uh we've already done a new roof for him fixed a bunch of other stuff and uh, we'll be back doing other stuff for him but uh it's definitely a success story but you know kids can come out of high school and get into a program and, and they start getting paid right, right away 
on the plumbing scale, some of the HVAC guys are offering sign-on bonuses. I saw one the other day of $10,000. Um, and it's on a sign in front of the plumber's shop. I'm like, 10K for a licensed plumber to sign on board. Holy smokes. Uh, that's, uh, but the, the demand is there. So we, we just got to find ways to let these young people know that, that there is a path and how to get there. And, and there's help out there. I would also add, by the way, that uh, two observations I have in line with what you're saying. Number one, when we talk about people being drawn to the building trades, which I think is great because you're absolutely right. They pay well. It's, it's a great career. And if you enjoy doing that sort of thing, it can be very rewarding. I would note uh, two things about that. Number one, uh, high school is a great opportunity to focus on that. I also think middle school is a great opportunity to start sowing the seeds. I find that kids are already career oriented and some of them are focused on, you know, what we do in media. They want to make movies, they want to whatever, and, and their interest to really wrap their arms around something like that, whether it is building things, uh, understanding electricity, uh, getting involved in movie making, whatever it might be. Middle school seems to be a great opportunity to set the stage for what may then come on follow-on years through high school to get them pre-committed. There's a selling opportunity there to get kids to understand that there are many pathways to success. Uh, that said, in order to amplify that success, once you're in a trade association, you're working, uh, you're developing your career, you've got a great skill set. I find that there's a lot of variability among tradesmen with respect to their understanding of managing themselves as a business. That is dealing with uh, the other stuff that has to happen, invoicing, tracking, uh, managing multiple jobs, multiple priorities, finding a way to keep their day organized such that their clients have a good experience. Um, and I'd like to know if there is any focus on that with any of the trade associations that you're aware of? Oh, there definitely is. Um, you know, and I'm kind of smiling as you say that because I have two children who are adults. Um, and I said, I don't care what you do in life. My son is my building partner, but I said, it's always going to involve math. It's always going to involve accounting. Please make sure you get, I don't care if you get a degree in anything else, but take accounting classes, do whatever. My daughter, um, uh, who is now, uh, the second assistant to the Uxbridge town manager and having a whole insight there um, is finishing her uh, or got her finished AS degree with an accounting background. So, because it's going to be important to her. I keep kidding her. She might be town manager one day. So you better be prepared. But uh, NAHB is as all of their um, um, continuing education courses and the ones they do at the international builder show always have business courses they have accounting experts. They have software experts. They have it there at their your you know availability, your fingertips, anything you could want. And we always talk about um, you know business and and you you know I say pretty much anybody can be a builder, but being a good business person and keeping that thing afloat and doing the right thing and making sure at the end of the day your your whole is a different story. And uh, and I will tell you through COVID. That has changed so drastically. There's many of us uh, um, just catching up with um, crazy workforce stuff, jobs being stretched out because of COVID and having to keep people separate and uh, availability of materials, all of it's in there. But the NAHB 
um, with their courses and what we offer here locally um, um, through through local practitioners. Um, I did a continuing education course with a fellow builder, um, um, and Bob owns a really wonderful, very successful um, remodeling company. Um, and you know, he starts off his course and he says he's failed twice. Uh, and then he took some accounting classes and then hired a partner who had an accounting background. And and the third time was the charm for them because they they know how to run things and keep tabs on it, keep it current. And uh, and so yes, we offer a lot of uh, different uh, ways for you to get certifications, not only in building stuff and tech building technologies, but in business management. That's a big deal. It's probably if you look at the course criteria for the International Builder Show, I would say it's probably more than 50% on the management side of uh, your business, your finances, your people, you know, because that's just as important. The technology, you can find those answers on, on the run, but uh, the, the people that need to uh, keep your wheels turning, you've got to really work on that. I would also emphasize, by the way, that uh, the best and brightest among them not only do real well in their careers, but perhaps some of them go on to become employers. That is, their companies and their success expand to the point where they get to bring other people up with them. And they start hiring people and they start running real businesses. Um, in some respects, that's part of what I experienced. I had a, a good technical background when I started out. And today, obviously, I'm managing a facility and I have to uh, delegate and hire people to do much of the work. That said, uh, it's it's a great career journey to be able to rise through the ranks and continue to develop your skills along the way. That said, Emerson, so glad you could join us today. We've covered a lot of ground. Um, and uh, thanks to you, had a very animated discussion about all the possibilities with respect to building back better, not only in terms of infrastructure, but building back better in terms of society and finding ways for people to enjoy a great career and an even greater career as they go forward. That said, this concludes our journey toward a more perfect union for today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Peter J. And for Emerson, for Jeff Roy, for Natalie Alinos, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, thank you all for being with us today. Until we meet again, this is Franklin Public Radio.